I'm Leah. We're going to read from the Bible now, but before we jump into it, um, if anyone doesn't have a copy of the Exodus booklet from last week or a Bible, Tim and Doug and Maggie are going to walk down now, so just put your hand up and they'll help you out if you'd like um, one of those. So we're reading, going to start off tonight reading from Acts chapter 7 on page 1009 in the Holman Bible. We're starting at verse 17. So Acts chapter 7, verse 17. As the time was drawing near to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them leave their infants outside so they wouldn't survive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home three months, and when he was left outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. As he was approaching the age of 40, he decided to visit his brothers, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his brother would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. The next day he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, Men, you are my brothers. Why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbour pushed him away, saying, Who appointed you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this disclosure, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he fathered two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Joseph. So Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have observed the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and came down to rescue them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, when they said, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and redeemer by means of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness 40 years. Second readings from the book of Exodus on page 50 of the Few Bibles, and it's Exodus chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor and they cried out. 
and their cry for help ascended to God because of the difficult labor. So God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and he took notice. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. Here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their oppressors, and I know about their sufferings. I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore go... I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I certainly will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and ask and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you, and this is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me and have said, I have paid close attention to you and what's been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised you that I will bring you up from the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to what you say. Then you, along with the elders of Israel, must go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness 
so that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. However, I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go unless he is forced by a strong hand. And I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give these people such favor in the sight of the Egyptians that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Each woman will ask a neighbor and any woman staying in her house for silver and gold jewelry and clothing. And you will put them on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Steve. It's good to hear the Bible with a nice English accent. Uh, my name is Paul, if I met with a nice English accent. Uh, we're in the book of Exodus. But I want to begin by just reading a beautiful verse from Isaiah. It's Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. It says this. God is speaking. He says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by your name, and you are mine. I will be with you when you pass through the waters and when you pass through the rivers. You will not be scorched when you walk through the fire, and the flame will not burn you. For I, Yahweh, am your God. And because you're precious in my sight and honored, I love you. Aren't they beautiful verses? I'm with you. You'll come to no harm. You're precious in my sight, and I love you. I don't know about you, but sometimes I know those truths up here. I, I know that God is with me, and I know that I'm precious in his sight, and I know that he loves me. But am I the only one who at times in life just cries out, God, where are you? God, what on earth are you doing? You know, there's moments in life where uh, your plans don't work and you face disappointments or you're discouraged in life or maybe you're sick or maybe you're suffering. Don't you find yourself asking those questions? God, where are you? God, what are you doing? As you sit and watch someone you love die, you've got to ask God, what are you doing in this moment? As you're exhausted or disillusioned, as you're fed up of work or fed up of life or fed up in your home life, I hope you're honest with God and say, God, where are you in this? What are you doing in this? Because sometimes God doesn't seem to be there, does he? Sometimes if you look at life through this human lens, all you see is disappointments, discouragements, sadness, suffering, tragedy, trials. And sometimes God just seems to be silent. Uh, you cry out to God, but he just doesn't hear you. And you start to ask those sort of questions. Well, maybe God doesn't care. Maybe God can't see me. Maybe God can't help me. Maybe God isn't all-powerful. Maybe God isn't good. Maybe God isn't sovereign. Do you ever do that? I do. Here's what I do. When I'm in that headspace and I'm sort of questioning, God, are you really there? What are you up to? 
When life's like that for me, here's what I tend to do. Firstly, I go into a poor will fix it mode. My sort of my control freak tendencies sort of take over. I, I can do this. I can solve this. My plans, my desires, my solutions, I'll do it my way. And then I suddenly find there are some things in life that I can't fix. In fact, so many things in life are, are totally outside of my control. And there are some things that are just too painful to even begin to deal with. So, so the, the poor will fix it just doesn't work. And so I, then I slip into sort of a blame God or accuse God mode. I do that sort of passive-aggressive thing with God. I pretend everything's okay, I pretend I'm worshipping God, I pretend I'm praying to God, but deep down I'm angry with God or I'm bitter with God or I feel like God has let me down. And I know up here that God is faithful and I know up here that God is able and I know up here that God is with me and I know up here that God is good. And I know he loves me, but sometimes that head knowledge just doesn't translate into my daily walk. And I cry out, God, where are you? What are you up to, God? So, so why do we do that? Why do we find it so hard to trust God and take him at his word? I think sometimes it's, it's timing, isn't it? Uh, we want God to act according to our time frame. We expect God just to rubber stamp our plans according to our time frame. And so we've got my plans, what I want to happen, and when I want to happen, and I prayed about it. And so if God's timing is not my timing, if God says, wait, we're like these sort of impatient kids who are kicking and screaming. No, I want it now, God, and if I can't have it now, it must mean you don't love me. Sometimes it's just the promises that we want God to deliver on promises he's never actually made to us. Do you ever do that? You expect God to keep promises that he's never actually made. And we accuse God of failing us, but actually he's never made those promises. Because for many of us, we've got this dodgy theology from dodgy 1980s Christian victory songs. But for most of us, it's just that our God is too small. Remember a quote from last week from Oswald Chambers when he was asked, Mr. Chambers, why is your faith so strong? And he said, my faith is so strong because my God is so big. And if you've got a shallow, one-dimensional, limited view of God, then when the tiniest bit of trouble comes to your life, you will be kicking and screaming, God, where are you? Just got one lesson tonight. We're looking at Exodus chapters 1 to 3. Just one big point. Hopefully you can remember one thing this week. You heard it last week as well. Here it is. Trust God is faithful to his promises, even when you can't see what he's up to. Trust God is faithful to all his promises, even when you can't see what he's up to. And that's like the bell that tolls throughout these chapters. It's the wonderful truth of chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Exodus. And we need to hear it again and again and again. And I need to hear that because when I can't see what God is up to, God is still faithful. Look at Exodus chapter 1. It begins where Genesis left off. And uh, Joseph is 
in Egypt with his brothers, living in this foreign land. And you think that we'd learned this lesson already, because just look back just a, a couple of lines to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. The end of Genesis, 50, verse 20. Joseph said these, said these famous words, you planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result. And see, that, that's Joseph's theology, that Joseph looks back on his life and he says, that when you threw me into the pit, you meant to harm me. When you sold me as a slave, you meant to harm me. Uh, when I was accused of adultery, that was meant to harm me. But, but all of this was, was in God's plan and God meant it for good because God is always faithful. But we're slow learners, so as we turn to Exodus chapter 1, it's the same message. Let's just be clear. What, what are the promises that God has made to his people at this point? What has God promised his people back in Genesis? Can you remember Genesis chapter 12? A great nation, a great number of people, as numerous as the stars in the sky. He, he's promised them the, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And he's promised them great blessing. They, they haven't got the land yet. They're, they're in Egypt. They're certainly not being blessed. They're being cursed, oppressed. But they are becoming a great nation. Tonight I want to do something a bit different. I want to just read through the whole of Exodus 1 to 3 and give you like a commented reading. This is the word of God. This word is God's word, not my words as the preacher. So chapter 1, verse 6, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. And we're supposed to think that's the problem because there's no obvious successor and Joseph was God's man. So it's certain failure. But no, verse 7, God keeps his promises. And the Israelites were fruitful and they increased rapidly and they multiplied and became extremely numerous. So the land was filled with them. It's, it's the language of Genesis chapter 1, isn't it? Be fruitful and multiply. It's the language of Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, be fruitful and multiply. It's the language of Genesis chapter 22, where God says to Abraham, you'll be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And despite circumstances, despite appearances, God is keeping his promise. But then you get the opposition. Verse 8, a new king who had not known Joseph came to power in Egypt and he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. So he feels threatened. They're too strong and they're too big. So let's deal with them shrewdly. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And if war breaks out, they may join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. And then we'd have no slaves. And so the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. Down to verse 13. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and they made their lives bitter with difficult labor and brick and mortar and all kinds of field work and they ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. And the picture here is, is God's people, rather than experiencing blessing, they're kind of living in a concentration camp. That's the picture here that, that every day they're treated as slaves and they're beaten and they're mocked and they're forced to work hard. It's a bit like being in Auschwitz or in Cambodia. It's brutal, it's harsh. But if you knew your Bibles, you'd know that God had not failed them. Because God had warned them back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 12, that they will live as foreigners and be enslaved for 400 years. 
But, but you know, if I'd been there, if we were sitting there, t- this group of people tonight, I reckon that I would be crying out, God, what are you doing? God, why don't you just snap your fingers and release us from slavery? God, have you forgotten us? God, do you care for us? Do you ever watch those clips of the voice of the martyrs? We've prayed for them tonight. Not just in Vietnam, but in Lebanon, in Syria, in Malaysia, in Ghana. Christians who, who love Jesus, this is their daily life. Persecution, oppression, beatings, violence against them. And I imagine I'll be crying out, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? We've got to learn to trust God. He will keep his promises. He does keep his promises. Because look at verse 12 in the middle of those, these verses. The more that the Egyptians oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites because God is a faithful God. He will grow his people. Plan A doesn't work for Pharaoh, so plan B is genocide or infanticide. Look at verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. If it's a daughter, she may live. That's horrific, isn't it? Can you imagine me? A, a Christian woman about to give birth, and you're just praying, Lord, I, I pray that it's not a son because he's going to be killed. And then God's mentioned for the first time in Exodus, in verse 17, these brave, courageous, ordinary women, the Hebrew midwives, they feared God rather than feared man. And they did not do as the king of Egypt had told them, and they let the boys live. That's very courageous, isn't it? And so the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this and why have you let the boys live? And if I was them, I would lie. And the midwives give this lame excuse. It is so lame, isn't it? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and they give birth before a midwife can get to them. And you see that God is behind all of this. God is at work behind the scenes to protect his people. And God was good to the midwives. He was very good to them. Pharaoh didn't bother to check out the stories. The the midwife came to no harm. In fact, verse 21, he gave them families. And in the midst of it all, verse 20, what is God doing? The people multiplied and became numerous. See how God is just keeping his promise? That's our God, isn't it? He always keeps his word even when you can't see what he's up to. But Pharaoh won't give up, will he? Verse 22, his third plan is actually just murder. Uh, Pharaoh commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile and let every daughter live. Let's wipe them out by killing every male child. And then you shift to chapter 2 of Exodus. It's a bit like Genesis. Remember, Genesis chapter 1 is the big picture creation. Genesis chapter 2, you go down to one person, Adam and Eve. Exodus chapter 1 is the big picture, Israel and Egypt. Exodus 2, you go down to one man, Moses. It's a wonderful chapter. 
See if you can spot the connection. It's about a, a baby boy born in humble circumstances who will save his people. Does that ring any bells? It's about a baby boy who should have died under the hand of an evil dictator, but is spared by God to save his people. Does that ring any bells? Let's look at the chapter. A man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman, and we don't know their names at this stage. That's not important. It's not about them. It's about the child. And the woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. You could read that in Matthew, couldn't you? And when she saw that the son was beautiful, the word there is good. It's the same word as in Genesis chapter 1 for good. She did a bold move and she hid him for three months. Again, a courageous woman. Living close to the palace, trying to keep his presence a secret. But you can't hide a baby for long, can you? And I love how the Bible is so rich in connections. Let me just read verse 3 literally. See if you can make the connections. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus ark for him and waterproofed it with asphalt and pitch. And she placed a child in the ark and set the ark in the water among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And you see how the river that's supposed to be the source of judgment is about to be the source of deliverance. And the river where the children are supposed to be drowned is actually going to be where God raises up his leader. And then verse 4, his sister, that is Miriam, Moses' sister, she stands and watches. And then you see God at work. A few, a few weeks ago, uh, some friends, or actually uh, it wasn't a friend, someone I, I met randomly, uh, gave me a verse which he didn't know my circumstance, but it just spoke to me. He said, it just so happened. And he was trying to tell me that nothing just so happens. Uh, our life is not this random series of fortuitous circumstances. God is behind it all. Nothing just so happens. Because God hands is over it and God handed in it and God hand is behind it and God is in control of everything. Well, look at verse 5. The princess, that is Pharaoh's daughter, just so happened to go down to, the, to bathe at the Nile that day while her servant goes walking on the riverbank. And the princess just so happened to see the the basket or the ark among the reeds. And she sent a slave girl to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, a little boy, and he was crying, because that's good, isn't it, to, to form the emotional bond. And she just so happened to feel sorry for him rather than to hate him. And she said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. And rather than killing him, she just so happened to meet Miriam, who just so happened to say to the Pharaoh's daughter, should I go and call a woman from the Hebrews to nurse the boy for you? What a good idea. And the princess actually listened to this Hebrew woman. Go, she says. And the girl went and called the boy's mother, who just so happened to be there. 
And, the, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him for me, and I'll pay your wages. And so the woman took the boy and nursed him. And so now you've got Moses' mother being paid to look after her own baby son without any fear of Egyptian authorities. And it just so happened that Moses then grew up in his own home, learning the scriptures, learning about Yahweh. And when the child grew older, verse 10, he's probably about nine or ten years old now, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, to the princess, and he became her son. She adopted him, he became, he became the prince of Egypt. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Aren't they amazing verses? Nothing just so happens, does it? God provided safety for the child for three months. God gave the mother the courage to act in faith and build the ark. And God caused the princess to go bathing that day at that particular spot and to spot the ark. And God gave her the compassion instead of the hatred. And in God's providence, Moses was raised in his own home. Do you know that about God? Do you know that about your God, that nothing just so happens? Even when you don't like what is happening, God is at work in it. I know that hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? When you're in the moment, you often can't see what God is doing. And I do know at times of pain, at times of suffering... You know that God's in control. You know God's behind it, but it's hard to see that sometimes, isn't it? And that well-meaning Christian friend gives you Romans 8, verse 28, in the cup of tea and says, you know, in all things, God works for good. And at that moment, you want to slap him in the face, don't you? <laughs> but you've got to trust that God is at work in everything, not just in some things, but in everything, because nothing just so happens. Back to our story, we've met our man, his name is Moses. We don't know much about his childhood, just like Jesus. But years later, verse 11, after Moses had grown up, he's now, this is about 40 years later, according to Acts chapter 7. And Moses has this kind of identity crisis. He's living in the palace with the pomp and the pleasantries, but deep down he knows he's an Israelite. So verse 11, he went out to his own people, his own people with the Israelites. And he observed their forced labor and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So what does Moses do? Moses does what you and I often do. We decide to take things into our own hands and do what we think we should do. And looking around and seeing no, no one, Moses struck the Egyptian. He hit him. And he died. We don't know whether he intended to kill. But the Egyptian died and Moses hit him in the sand. And so things for Moses don't work out quite as he planned. Does that ever happen to you? You think something's a really good idea and you think you're doing something for God and you think you're trying to help somebody but God has other plans. He takes you down a different path that you thought you would never end up going down. And so Moses, who's been fighting for freedom, uh, verse 14, the, the Israelites don't trust him anymore. And Moses becomes frightened. 
And verse 15, Pharaoh tries to kill him. It's a pretty bad day for Moses. And so Moses flees in verse 15. He fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. That's about 200 miles away. And he sat down by a well. Again, this challenge last night. A little project for theologians. What's the significance of wells in the Bible? Wells seem to pop up all over the place at important points in the Bible. But the point is that even a Muppet like Moses can't stop God's plans. At this stage, we don't know why God has taken Moses out of the palace. We don't know why God's man is all alone in a distant country, away from family, away from friends. We don't know why God hasn't snapped his fingers and rescued his people. And I'm sure Moses, sitting by the well, is thinking, well, that was a stupid thing to do. And I'm sure Moses was thinking, God, where are you? I do wonder whether Moses needed to be taught a lesson, acting in his own strength, according to his timetable and his plan, is always a bad thing to do. Let me just skip through the rest of these verses very quickly. Verse 16, the priest of Midian has seven daughters and they came to draw water from the well. And verse 17, some bullying shepherds come along, but Moses is kind of the hero. He comes to rescue them. And the, the, the daughters go home and the father says, why have you come back so quickly? And verse 19, they say, well, an Egyptian rescued us. So, so Moses obviously looks like an Egyptian. He dresses like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. And verse 19, he even drew water for us and watered the flock. And, and the father says, where is he? And the father invites Moses around for dinner and Moses meets his wife, verse 21. And he marries Zippor, and, they, and they, have, they gave birth to a son. And then you've got these wonderful verses. I love verses 23 to 25. After a long time, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out. And I, I don't know whether they've ever, ever cried out before, do you? The Bible doesn't tell us. I mean, surely in those 80 years of oppression and being enslaved and being ruthlessly beaten, surely they cried out to God, but maybe they didn't. But when they did cry out to God, look what happened. Verse 24, God heard their groaning. God remembered his promises. And God saw the Israelites and God took notice. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God acted. Because God never forgets his promises, God's always faithful. And I'm sure, again, Moses could look back and say, okay, that's why I spent those formative years in the Hebrew home, and, and that's why I grew up in the palace, and, and that's why I learned Egyptian, and that's why you took me to Midian, and that's where I met my wife, and that's why, and that's why, and that's why. But often, it's only as you look back that you can see what God was doing. We're very slow learners, aren't we? We are very slow learners. In my life, so many times God has been trying to teach me, Paul, you're not in control. Paul, you're not in control. But I seem slow to learn that lesson. It's almost two years ago. It's two years on Wednesday when Nathaniel was born. Uh, many will know that Rex went into labor at 29 weeks. And I remember sitting in the hospital and, uh, and we were praying. 
And we looked at each other and we said, no, this baby's not going to come early. We know lots of people who have had these threats at 29 weeks and gone to full term. But he did come early. That was God's plan, not our plan. And you know, time and time again, I've had to learn, I'm not in control. I can't control things. I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen to me tomorrow, let alone today. And yet, we think we're in control of our lives, don't we? God's in control. God is working out his plans. God is keeping his promises. And sometimes you just can't see what he's up to. Let's just dip into chapter 3, just the first bit. Moses is now 80. He's shepherding the flock. He leaves the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and they came to Horeb, that is, the same place as Sinai. And then God appears in verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared in a flame of fire. When you read fire in the Bible, you're supposed to, you're supposed to read God. It's a symbol of God's presence, a symbol of God's holiness. The holy God appears to Moses. Moses sees this bush that's not on fire but not consumed, and and he thought, I must go over there. Uh, the God speaks to Moses in verse 4. Moses, Moses, here I am. And then Moses does what we all do. We think we can just waltz into God's presence. We think we can uh, approach the holy God casually. But God says in verse 5, don't come closer. Remove the sandals. That they're, they're unclean. You're unclean. But you're standing on holy ground because I'm a holy God. And then he says, I am the God of your father. I am the covenant-keeping God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord says, verse 7, I'm not blind, and I'm not deaf, and I'm not stupid. I have seen the misery of my people, and I have heard them crying out, and I do know their suffering, and I will act to rescue them, and I will take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And God speaks to his man and says, I am going to keep my promises, and you're going to be my man who leads the people to safety. Extraordinary verses. Trust God. He is faithful, even when you can't see what he's up to. So let me ask you. This is you just give some... Do some work. What are the promises that God has made to us today, as Christians today? What has God promised us? Tell me. He'll never leave us. So his presence with us. And we're not dependent on a tabernacle or a burning bush. The presence of God is now in us by his spirit. He says he'll never leave us because... He is our, our, our heavenly Father who loves us and he'll hold on to us by, our, by his mighty right hand. He will never leave us. That's a great promise to trust God with, his presence with us. What else has God promised us? Eternal life. It begins now when you trust in Jesus, but we're heading for heaven. That amazing promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the, the Eden, the reformed Eden. He, he does not promise that the journey to heaven will be a nice, smooth, easy ride, does he? He never promises that. 
In fact, if you read your Bibles, he promises that it's going to be a bumpy ride because we're living in a fallen world. He's promised his presence. He's promised eternal life. What else has he promised us? His peace. What does that mean, to have his peace? Again, it doesn't mean that life is going to be plain sailing. It does mean you've got peace with him, that you're right with him, that your sins are forgiven, that you're confident that he is your heavenly father and you're his precious child. He's promised you that. What else has he promised you? Yeah. The gift of the Spirit. So we can, we can, we can understand the Scriptures. It illuminates the Word to us, gives us that, that assurance, gives us that peace, gives us that confidence that he will keep us and he will protect us. So they're the kind of promises that he makes. His presence, his peace, his spirit, heaven, protection. He promises those things. He does not promise you that you're going to have a nice, easy life. So I don't know what he's doing in your life at the moment. And maybe you are here tonight and just like the Israelites, you cry out, why, God? Where are you, God? What are you doing, God? Can't you see me, God? Don't you care for me, God? If that is you tonight, trust God is faithful, even when you can't see what he's up to. But maybe you're one of those people, and I keep meeting these people who have like, this amazingly easy life. You ever met those people? Everything is plain sailing. That is not the norm. And one day, you'll cling on to this truth. So lock it away in your heart. Own it. Believe it. That God is faithful to his promises, even when you can't see what he's up to. Let me pray. I'll give you a moment to pray by yourself. Maybe cry out to God, where are you and what are you up to? Maybe ask for forgiveness for times where you haven't trusted that he is faithful. Lord God, your word tells us that we are precious, loved, redeemed, forgiven. Your word tells us that you are always with us, you never leave us, you never forsake us. You're the God of all comfort, the God of all strength, the God of all compassion, the God of all kindness. And we trust you and take you at your word. Lord, in those times of turmoil and trial where we cannot see what you're up to and you seem to be silent, Lord, remind us, hold on to us, show yourself to us. We ask that for Jesus' sake.